I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. On this season of More Than Profit, we wanted to take some time to dive deeper into more on the managed asset side of, of a strategy. Sometimes it's easier to see the direct initiatives and connect the stories of impact to a mission. But our desire is to see more people move more of their assets towards their purpose and values in life. You'll hear us talk about how some people believe that in order to achieve impact, you have to sacrifice financial returns, that in some way they must underperform to have impact. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's easy or that these strategies and funds always outperform, but I think it's important to recognize that it's possible. That if you are determined to see capital as a tool in achieving your financial goals and missional outcomes, that you can find strategies that are working. I think the thing to keep in mind as well is that it's not a journey or a movement in which anyone has yet completed. There's still major work to be done related to several things that you've heard already in this season, related to benchmarking and impact data and measurement. But people like Carl Chang, my guest today, have been working for years to creatively build successful strategies that perform financially while also looking to the interests of, in this case, tenants and residents. That actually caring for people isn't a cost or expense at all, but that it has a net positive financially, and that when our tenants win, we win. I always start out by introducing myself as the least famous of two brothers, uh, even though I'm the <laughs> oldest one. <laughs> uh, so my younger brother was uh, a successful tennis player, uh, Michael Chang, and um, many many have known me as his coach. But as you were just asking earlier, um, that um, I was responsible for a lot of different things, and part of that was um, managing his career and stewarding stewarding whatever uh, success or financial success that he would have uh, as an athlete. And um, you know that originated from my father and his his mandate to the two boys, uh, and I being the eldest one, um, you know he left me with a simple uh, mandate, and that was um, we're going to do it a little differently um, instead of relying on you know sports agents to manage uh, you know Michael's wealth. Uh, we're going to look to uh, the family to do that and steward that. And uh, since you are the eldest, Carl, uh, that'll, you know, that burden of responsibility will fall on to you. And most importantly, don't lose your brother's money. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty powerful wonder, statement. So. Oh, it's, fa it's fascinating. And I think, um, <laughs> I wonder what, what were the dinnertime conversations like uh, growing up with, with such a, yeah, I mean, a, a lofty expectation placed on your shoulders, but even even yeah. your brother, the pressure of being a professional athlete, and just the the expectation of your father. I mean, that's a that's a pretty pretty amazing structure um, to to even put together as as a family. What was that like yeah, uh, growing yeah. up? Yeah, no, sure. I, I, honestly, I mean, I think part of the family mandate, and you know, from my parents, it was really to protect Michael. Um, you know, he had enough mm. pressure as an athlete. He was young, obviously, 16, you know, winning the French Open at 17. And so um, really trying to give him not as much to think about other than, you know, being able to be uh, free of pressure, free of other concerns, and really just focusing on tennis. Um, you know, the family mm. construct was we were the ones to protect him, take on that pressure, take on those responsibilities so that he had less to worry about. And so 
Uh, I would say our dinner conversations as a family were uh, probably a little bit more lighthearted, but my the father, uh, Carl, son, <laughs> older son uh, sort of conversations were probably <laughs> a little bit more uh, intense. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and for your brother, even, I mean, this was, this was his professional career and the money that he was making off yep. of, off of that success, like the pressure he must've felt both on the court, but then, uh, the trust that he, uh, and gave you essentially, uh, to manage that on multiple levels. Um, uh, what, what was the genesis of that? Were you always close? Were you friends growing up? And there was just this, this connection and this, um, was that kind of, uh, built over over a lifetime of both uh, being brothers, but also business partners. Yeah, I think I think my parents brought us up that way. I think a lot of that, you know, came from mom and dad. Um, again, we mm. were a small family, only two brothers, um, and really came from nothing. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, we certainly didn't anticipate the success Michael would have. Um, quite frankly, if, if, in using in sort of underwriting terms, he didn't underwrite well as a good investment, <laughs> if you would say, you know, so um, who would have known that he'd have the success that he had? And so there yeah. were a lot of nay naysayers and, you know, uh, with a lot of uh, negative rhetoric around, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you turning pro at such a young age? Really, you're not equipped. There's just, you know, you're too small, you're too this, you should really just, you know, get a scholarship in school and go to school. And, you know, that would be a wonderful success story in itself. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we band together as a family, you know, supported, supported him in that in that effort. And, um, you know, uh, one thing led to another and, you know, he won the French Open and and who would have guessed even after winning the French Open that he'd have, you know, the success that he'd have over the next, you know, 16, 17 years. So. Well, and that's the other thing. It's not just success, but a long career uh, in Correct, a pretty yeah. grueling and tough sport uh, physically. So. Um, Absolutely. Well, so your your resume obviously is 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 rather impressive yourself. Um, but, you know, I think I think sometimes I'd love I love asking this question, I think, for you. Um, I'm, mm. I'm really curious what what is um, what's maybe not on your resume that's something you're super proud of or super formative for you uh, and kind of the person that you've become that you wish wish more people knew about. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, uh, knowing my personality, I actually prefer being behind the scenes. So I, uh, ah. I live a I live I live a pretty quiet life, especially having such a famous brother. Um, but you know now that. Uh, it's been a few decades uh, since uh, uh, being on tour and being in front of television. Um, you know, we try to play close to the vest, um, you know, and, and pretty low key. Um, obviously, we've had uh, some tremendous success as a firm and as Kairos over the last two decades now. And, um, you know, that's been certainly a blessing. Um, but, you know, we, we, you know, I think the most important thing is to stay grounded, stay humble and um, stay focused and, and uh, continue to execute the way we've been executing um i think that's yeah. that's kind of the um at least uh, our secret sauce is, if you will you know don't, yeah. don't don't start thinking we're more than we're not <laughs> mm. so i think that's a good that's a good word uh despite the success that you've seen both within the family and within yeah. the firm you know don't think don't yeah. think more of ourselves so um 
So now fast forward a little bit, you're, you're at Kairos. Um, how did you, how did you actually get into, to real estate of all things? Cause you know, I think yeah. uh, you, you could have, you could have done a lot of different things and I think you've really created a niche with that among other things now. Um, but that's kind of where you started was in, in kind of real estate investing, multifamily and such. How did you get into yeah. that? No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually, I credit that a lot to my father. Uh, my father's a chemical engineer. My mom's a bioengineer. And actually uh, when I went to Cal, I was, you know, as a, as a good older son, uh, coming from a, a, an Asian family with the strong, strong parents, you know, I was supposed to be a doctor like every other a good Asian kid was supposed to be. And, you know, Michael had some success and I got the call from dad said, okay, scrap that, go business. <laughs> and so, so did that. And I, you know, um, you know, hindsight's always 2020 is certainly blessed by it. Um, but I, I give a lot of credit to my father, um, mm. you know, in his generation, as he looked at the success of people that he admired, um, a lot of them had created success in real estate. Um, and he's he was smart enough to understand that the equity markets, even uh, certainly now, but even then, were so efficient. And there was just such such uh, efficiency with regards to uh, identifying opportunity and trying to be sort of a, a first move or, or advantage um, in making investment thesis or selection. Uh, bricks and mortar was still pretty inefficient. Um, and he saw within his generation a lot of the success that had been created in real estate. And so he really guided me toward using that avenue as a way to begin thinking about how to steward Michael's wealth. Um, so when I started my career in real estate, I became, I started my career as an underwriter, really kind of bricks and mortar, uh, understanding collateral values uh, with my mentor um, who helped, who uh, recruited me to help her uh, create um, sort of the loan, loan product origination platform for Wells Fargo, who she eventually uh, went to start the same thing out, hmm. uh, for Bank of America before she retired. And so I really became, I really um, uh, un, uh, learned um, the business and really from the ground up. And so when we started investing in real estate, uh, certainly not an optimal time in the sort of uh, late 80s when interest rates were double digit and we were sort of going through a different type of uh, recession uh, then. And the opportunity to understand and or touch what we were actually investing into uh, and you know, understanding what uh, what it costs to build a building or 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 uh, you know build a shopping center or an apartment complex was kind of critical, and so we used that as a premise to understand how we were going to invest, and it was a very simple premise in that you know recurring cash flow stream trying to replace Michael's revenue that he was creating from tennis uh, through something that was durable and something that was tangible that we can in fact you know touch and feel that wouldn't change at a moment's notice uh it wouldn't change because of a shock in sort of um some projection in earnings or some some lost contract that we weren't necessarily aware of because again uh the equity markets were were so ineff efficient that way and so that was that was the avenue which my, our my father guided me uh, to begin, you know, that career and begin strategizing and how to steward, you know, Michael's wealth at the time. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, so on this, on this uh, podcast, it's, you know, more than profit looking at, you know, not less than a financial return or market return, but, but yeah. also looking at how we, how we build strategies or investment uh, portfolio 
companies or funds that are targeting a, a, a market return, but also with uh, with an eye towards some sort of community or social or environmental impact. Given your background and kind of the the, the origin uh, of your family and the, and the importance of, of family and community, how, how has impact been a part of your thesis at Kairos since the beginning? Has that has that been something that you've done, or is that something you came into? Is that something that you know has new language as the impact uh, space has kind of emerged? Uh, what, what's that look like for you over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I think it's always been it's always been an underlying uh, theme or foundational sort of uh, perspective and belief uh, in how we look at investment. Um, stewardship being, you know, the pr the primary driver as we look in and underwrite different opportunities. But knowing that we were making we were looking to make investments, uh, looking across different asset classes that, you know, now we use the word impact now we use the word social impact or we use esg for that for for the new sort of uh, terminology of today but back then it was sort of like good investing you make good investments um, as long as it was tangible, uh, you were creating value, you were bringing value to consumers, you were providing providing a benefit to uh, to people who are utilizing um, your centers or renting your apartments. What kind of what kind of community do they want to live in? What type of environment? What what sort of amenities and what sort of um, uh, uh, what's I I use the terms now because they're so commonplace. You know the impacts that we can have on on the families that live in our communities mm -hmm. uh, back then to differentiate ourselves from you know every other project that we're competing against within various submarkets yeah. and you know now as we look back then and now we're translate that to sort of our initiative and strategies it really become it's really come full circle yeah you know you know, we look at these, you know, we look at ESG and we look at the environmental sort of saving initiatives that we can create uh, within within the apartments or within the projects that we uh, develop and or invest in. And that's just good for our environment, right? But what we realize is now you're reducing operating expenses, you're, re you're reducing the cost to manage these projects, which translates into net operating income, which translates into uh, accretive value. And then when you layer on social impact now, as we talk about these and use these type of terminologies today, because it's such a focal point, you know, back then it was like, you know, how can we create great programs and help these families, you know, in their everyday walk of life? Mm. Because most people live che paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. They worry about putting food on the table, worry about pro providing a good life for their children and, and being giving them the the best opportunity and now that we've invested in infrastructure to create social programs partner with strategic uh, nonprofit organizations that have dedicated their lives uh, to these different initiatives to you know to change people's lives and to have have true impact and then translate that now into an actual return on cost that is translated into people that appreciate the communities they live in are protective in the about the communities they live in you know uh, care about the, uh, the, their surroundings um, and become protective and loving of one another yeah that that is pretty cool from where i sit 
it, to see that kind of impact. When I love, I love the language, just good business. And, and I think that's the, uh, one of the true things too, which is, uh, you know, this impact investing space, you know, there's a lot of arguments, where is it going? What's the, do we, do we ever achieve a world where we drop the impact modifier and we're back to where this is just how we do yeah. business? Um, because it does feel like, obviously you look back to history, there have been companies and funds and people that have always seen business as a part of society and a society that's that's flourishing is one that's not just extractive but um, is additive and so of course it's good business it's it's going to positively support your underlying bottom line if you help the people paying the bills um, so I, I love that language of good business and now it's impact it's kind of the same thing in a sense you know maybe maybe tighter metrics maybe more common definitions of things maybe um, but yeah. you know, you mentioned stewardship. Like I think, you know, when you look at water conservation, it's good business at the end of the day, typically right. some people know this, some people don't you're, you're paying the water bill. So yes, it's great for the environment, but it's also good for your bottom line. And so where you can conserve right. and help reduce the cost of, of water or water consumption, it's going to actually help the performance of, of the fund. Um, I'm curious uh, on the social side, because I do think this is one of the differentiations of your strategy, which is this, some of these social mm. programs that you have, uh, not not to diminish the, the water conservation, but I think um, some yeah. of these social programs, I think, are unique um, to, to what you do, especially in the, the last year that we've seen uh, with COVID. Can yep. you talk to me a little bit about what what's an example of a, of a social program that, that one of your uh, units might be uh, executing uh, today? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, and especially, I mean, as you mentioned, Bryce, especially during COVID, right? I mean, you know, being able to provide, um, as an example, just something new that came up this year. I mean, uh, with the PPP uh, programs, with the unemployment support, you know, a lot of families perhaps didn't have access or didn't even understand even to begin the process of accessing financial support. We partner with 5013Cs that, uh, and in fact, even some cases, not just 5013Cs, but just other organizations that would educate our tenant base, say, hey, you don't, you're not in this alone, and maybe you're finding a way to make things work, but there are financial resources that help, that are available to you to help you during this time of crisis. Let us educate you. Let us help you uh, apply for the support so that, so that, they can so it could be accretive to supporting your family that during this time of need i mean that was a real a real two-day sort of scenario yeah um now that we're talking about vaccines i mean prior to the vaccines and covid you know we were bringing in flu shots to the communities as a service and paying for this wow. because you know we see a lot of fam the parents that are two paychecks or sometimes single single parents that are raising their families they can't afford to get sick they can't afford, you know, to take more time off than sort of the sick leave that's required. And, you know, now with now with COVID extending a lot of that stuff, you know, they want to be healthy. So the fact that we can provide, you know, free flu shots and things of that uh, when, you know, perhaps they couldn't afford to have that. Um, those were really important. And, and in some cases, daycare. Yeah you know, or back to school programs or, you know, children now with not being able to go to school because of certain moratoriums to be able to provide some socially distanced, safe environment for, you know, support or some educational support. I mean, these types of things 
are you you sometimes take these things for granted mm -hmm. but when you when you face the year that we had you begin to really begin to understand how much impact and how important that is we got we received some wonderful emails back to our uh, program manager anita and she was just sharing these notes back to our firm at year end and i tell you it, it brought us to tears i mean it was an emotional moment saying how thankful they were that somebody somebody actually care yeah. to take these initiatives and reach out and you know again do these have economic reward actually there wasn't the intent we thought this is an amenity that needed to be required mm -hmm. only as a net result did we realize okay this actually turned out to have some economic impact we had no turnover we had less bad debt we have people actually taking care of the the uh, projects they live in the apartments they live in because these are they're their primary home mm -hmm. and just just the condition of the communities that we manage i mean just are probably at a level you know that uh, above other competitive communities that aren't making these types of investments yeah. for for these poor families so well it's interesting i mean if you invest in people they invest back in you and i think you know, if if, yeah. if they have a choice of where they can live, sometimes they don't, you know, unfortunately, but if they do, if they're, if they right. have some mobility, they're going to choose a place that, that cares more about them than just the, uh, the rent check or, or whatever. And it's interesting because one right. of the things you're speaking to, we ran um, a program recently called the Reconstruct Challenge. And one, because one of the things we found mm -hmm. in the housing crisis, and I'm curious about your perspective on just the, the overall housing crisis, but it's almost, it was two parts. Mm -hmm. It was this issue of like brick and mortar. So when, when anybody ever thinks about affordable housing, and this is what you're steeped in, it's the brick and mortar. Like we need yep. more units, which is true. Right. Um, but one of the things in Louisville that we've experienced very acutely is there's actually like enough units. Uh, but the reality is the units that we have are not affordable to the people that actually need them. Mm. So we have we have more units at the yeah. higher income bracket than we have need for. And we have fewer units at the lower income bracket. And so what we recognized was to, almost to your point on the social programs, um, if we can actually help someone's ability to afford we're actually going to help move, like help their mobility even without even creating more units. So we need more units, but if we can actually help someone, so we we partner with the group out of uh, Chicago that called M Relief, and they're they're actually a technology nonprofit. They work across the mm -hmm. country, and they actually help um, people access SNAP payments. And because they found that okay. this multi-billion-dollar program goes underfunded or underused, because a lot of times people don't even know they qualify. But the average yeah. person's on SNAP for eight to ten months for an average payment of two hundred and fifty dollars per person per family. And mm -hmm. you, you just imagine, like, what would what if somebody has a, an extra two hundred and fifty dollars in their pocketbook as opposed to paying for groceries? What what could they do with that? Well, that could be their utility bill. That could be their rent check. That could be medication. And so just a simple sure. thing like that, making things more affordable uh, for people that are experiencing financial insecurity. So I wanted to flip to the just the current moment related to housing and just kind of obviously I know you're not just in housing, but what are you seeing and, and, and what are you are, is there anything that gives you pause related to just what we're facing right now with uh, the potential eviction crisis that's on our doorstep? Or is that something that uh, you have a different perspective and, and see things differently related to kind of where we'll go over the next six months as a nation? Um, or are there things that you're really looking out for, hoping for maybe even from the administration and responding to kind of what we see on the horizon? 
Yeah, I, I you know, I've got I've got a lot of uh, different perspectives, and I think it varies from region mm. to region. Um, you know, um, yeah, I think uh, you know, for the majority, uh, at least from our perspective, and at least from my own perspective, I think people people in general find a sense of uh, sort of self-fulfillment uh, and um, sort of uh, pride and self-worth when they are actually earning a paycheck and being able to afford uh, to support themselves, right? And I think that type of mentality or that type of family has the potential and the opportunity to, as you, as you were pointing out, use an opportunity, grow, and improve their sort of personal circumstance. I think there's the other extreme, which I struggle with a little bit, where it's where there's a different type of mentality that have become sort of complacent to live off of government subsidy. And I understand there are certain groups that certainly need it, but I think we've got to fix, we've got to create opportunity for for that group of people that want to get out of that situation, right? Um, and so I think there there's there's a there's a bridge that needs to be. Uh, completed there to give them the opportunity for those that have it because I innately believe and again you know we came from pretty humble beginnings ourselves um, and knowing that with hard work with a little bit of help and a little bit of encouragement um, there is opportunity for people I mean again um, why many people immigrated to the United States it's the land of opportunity right and so um, I think by providing affordable housing and sort of giving them basic needs um, and then giving them every opportunity to to have the opportunity to be successful, whether that be through education, whether that be, you know, some some incentive that says, hey, I'm going to provide reward for you because you've earned this and you've accomplished X. We want to continue to facilitate that good work. Uh, and then give you and give you more opportunity as a reward rather than sort of what my perspective and this is where I get a little conflicted reward bad behavior uh, and then sort of to encourage bad behavior to to uh, feed more bad behavior so I I, fought, I I struggle a little bit with with that and it's not an easy solution to solve I understand that oh yeah um, well it's, it sounds like know. there's there's a friend of mine that once he talks about this it's a it's a big word, but it's kind of like the principle of subsidiarity. Uh, and so it's, mm. it's, and it, in layman's term, it basically means that the, the place most appropriately positioned to help a person is closest to that person. Meaning like, ideally mm. it's the family unit. And if the family unit is unable yeah. to support that person, then it's the community and the community typically it could be neighborhood. It could be extended family. It could be whatever. And then it's, and it's, and then we kind of have a concentric circles. And then the, the real, the, the real role of the outer circles is to support those inner circles so that closest to mm -hmm. that person in need, we're able to, to meet the needs of that person. And so business fits in there, civic organizations fit in there, uh, churches and nonprofits fit in there, the state, the federal government. And I think one, maybe one of the things you're talking about, and I, in your earliest response, it was like, it depends on the region. And I think that's a helpful insight because the problems that we're experiencing and the ways actually services are distributed are so different across the country yeah. uh, from one city to the next, from one state to the next. And I think it's, it's unfortunate to kind of extrapolate uh, one common standard, um, but to then really say, okay, how do we drive this down to the closest place 
possible to, to serve that person. And, you know, in a sense, what Kairos is trying to do by creating some of these social programs is to say, okay, we have a responsibility and we have a pretty clear and close relationship to these people. How, right. what can we do? What is our responsibility to support them? So that's great. Right. No, that, I mean, that's absolutely right. When I was sharing with you earlier about the social, the social programs we've in- implement in our communities and I was saying how the communities themselves become protective of the of of the areas they live that includes their co-tenant base Mm. and what's been fascinating to see is you know they become protective of one another like a greater family and you start to see success breed success within those communities when they see somebody that enters a community that perhaps is not conducive to that success they frown on that because they don't want that kind of influence to their families or their children. Mm-hmm. And so you see that get weeded out pretty quickly. And so that's what's been really neat to see. Um, and I think they've become very, very appreciative of, you know, these programs and the support that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it just, it just, uh, it, it's, a it's a real conduit to, um, to, um, uh, a really healthy living environment. So it's been great. To that see. is great. So flipping gears real quick, I think one of the goals of this season was to really look at um, fund managers, strategies that mm-hmm. that are really pursuing impact, but also not not sacrificing profit. And I mean, like by mm-hmm. profit in this definition, I mean financial profit, because I do think where I sit, a lot of people question that. And we were talking about before we started just about how they 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 downplay. Oh, that's that might be getting profit, but not market returns. Do you ever hesitate to describe some of your strategies as impact strategies? Do you ever, are you in those circles? I know you're in the Bay Area, so it's a little bit maybe norm, normative, but um, do you ever experience that that kind of that label of a concessionary strategy because of what you're trying to pursue? Uh, and what do you what do you think about that? As I'm even just bringing it up right now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's good. It's a good question. Uh, you know, I I would say this. There was definitely an educational process uh, as we as we. Uh, sort of socialize the idea amongst investors that we're really just targeting return, right? We do have, you know, a social impact initiative as well, too. And now that we've got almost five and a half, six years of history, we can actually say the social impact, the impact that we're actually making that really we thought was an amenity, no different than providing a clubhouse or a workout facility for, for, for the community, but actual an amenity. Uh, now it's actually having economic impact mm-hmm on our returns. Um, and so that's, but that's been really accretive and that has only proven over, over a period of time, right? Because it was more thesis, uh, it was more theory and thesis than sort of actuality. And now that we actually have results to prove the social impact is actually creating economic return, that educational process amongst our LPs are now beginning to really resonate saying, wow, Okay, we got the ESG focus and how that reduces operating expense, but we didn't think the social impact was going to have that type of that type of impact, a positive impact on our returns. And especially during a time like this last year, COVID, when you're seeing sort of bad debt, and I think we've been beating all the uh, uh, national housing uh, benchmarks on collections, on occupancy across the board. I mean, you have to begin thinking, you know, it's really the social impacts and sort of the influence that we've been having on those families. Um, And so I think that has been really accretive. And I think long term, as investors begin thinking about this sort of strategically, what I've come to conclude is that, you know, good long term investments with long term thesis 
in which it's actually truly impacting positively sort of uh, our communities, our society, uh, you know, whether it be ESG or whether it be social, has long-term value. Um, you know, things that perhaps don't have positive impact, maybe some short-term economic success, but eventually, you know, I think they tend to dissipate. <laughs> and I love so. the way you describe it as, a, you know, the amenity like, uh, like a gym. Um, and it reminded me, we've got an investment, uh, more of a direct one that, you know, the thing that everybody on an individual level, you go and you get a job in corporate America, the thing you kind of, as an amenity you come to expect is this retirement or 401k match or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this company right. called vault, what they basically realized was because of issues of, of personal debt or student debt, many people were starting off getting that job. And they're like, I can't even, I've got to put money towards my student debt. That's an awesome amenity, yeah. but I can't even partake. And, and so what they created was a structure and a system to be able to allow a retirement match from a corporation to be applied towards a student debt. And so you think about, think about that long-term value economically, similar to kind of as much as somebody might enjoy having a gym to be able to flip that and have an amenity where it's like actually helping them economically. Uh, there's, there's a really, really interesting, both financial, that's not the, the desire. I mean, that's not the reason we do it necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. but it, it does have a financial, um, output to it. So that's pretty neat. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I've got to ask in, uh, before we, before we get to close, you're also the co-founder of Pyology. So my, uh, my, one of my partners, <laughs> I mentioned him before. He's, he wanted me to talk to you about tennis cause he loves it. And he also is like Mr. Pizza. <laughs> So, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so I've got to ask, all of this background that you have, how did you, I mean, obviously, biology, most people in the country are going to be familiar with kind of revolutionary, what, what you guys did to kind of reimagine the pizza uh, for the individual consumer. Mm -hmm. How did you get into biology? Like going from affordable housing and, and all that you've done, you know, to manage your, your, your family's uh, net assets. And how did you, how did you get into that? Are you just a huge pizza fan and, and just had a different a, a way to reimagine kind of the pizza experience? Experience or yeah uh, well if you can't say tell in video i just like to eat <laughs> <laughs> so yeah having having grown up on the east coast i mean it was all about the great pie right so um i love pizza love food in general um it was a fun project that originally i didn't think of even uh, growing it more than or even starting more than one unit uh you know did it with my girls it was a fun project um because um they always see dad cooking or sort of creating some new thing to enjoy at home and to, hey yeah it might be a fun project to uh start with the girls and then and then we had we started to have some early on success and of course then the competitive nature in me came out and it's like well <laughs> how can we just do one with the with lines out the door so one thing led to another that's great uh, but def, definitely a different venture yeah and how, how old were your girls when you started that well, shoot, my girls are quite, uh, my girls are, uh, well, I didn't give my, my own age away, but one's, one, one's graduating from college already, another one's in college, and I got another one going to college here soon. Oh, awesome. uh, so, but, but when I started, my eldest one, uh, Katie, was in high school, so. Um, wow, uh, so, that's cool. So, so, some time ago, so it's been fun. What a neat experience. You know, I'm sure you've learned a ton just on that side of it than, uh, than on the, Yeah. so. 
Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's it, the food side is fun, but what I realized quickly in the restaurant game, it's it it is a difficult business because it mm. actually is a people business uh, more than it is a food business. Mm. Um, and so um, yeah, that it 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 was it was definitely a good a learning experience for me for sure. So. That's great. <laughs> well, Carl, I really appreciate your time. One question I've been asking folks on this season yeah. specifically, just trying to frame up uh, these strategies. Uh, related to the impact space. Um, what, so thinking about the impact universe or industry, if you want to call it that, what, what gives you, what gives you hope about, about these kind of these emerging impact strategies that, you know, maybe not, aren't much different than just the good business you discussed of several decades ago. What gives you hope about that? What gives you pause? Um, you know, I was at a, you know, give you a chance to think about, I was at a conference recently where it was talking about impact going mainstream, which is, which is on some levels really exciting and encouraging. Just kind of think about more people aligning their, their own personal values with, with how they think about investments. But there's also some concern there, greenwashing and other things. So what, what for you gives you kind of hope about, about this future and what, what gives you pause? Um, you know, I, I mean, the, the pause is a, the, the, I guess from a pause perspective, um, because I don't, I, I see, I like to see things more in the positive light than the negative light. But from the pause perspective, I just, I just like, I want, I want, I just worry about people taking it, uh, use, using it for the wrong purpose. It was sort of my perspective, you know, um, because I think there's probably some mixed messaging uh, around it. I think what gives me hope, uh, and I'm, I'm a hopeful and optimistic person is, you know, I see the impact that we're having in people's lives. I think in general, um, people, the majority, I think this, the wealth disparity is an issue. Um, I think for those that are given the opportunity and really given the opportunity, I just have a lot of hope in people. And I believe in hard work. I believe that people want to work hard. I believe if given the fair chance and the opportunity, I think most of them will be more successful than not. Um, I just see I just see a, a group of people that are hungry, uh, that just need a chance, and that just gives me hope. Um, and that makes me excited because I get choked up just you know seeing or listening to a story or hearing of a story of somebody who you know, just gave somebody an opportunity and they turned it into something. Those always get me emotional. Um, and that's what makes, that's what, that's what gives me hope. And, you know, if I can leave, I can I leave this earth saying that, you know, I've had a little bit of impact on somebody's life. I mean, that's all I can ask for. To learn more about Carl and his firm at Kairos, visit KIMC.com. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you've liked what you've heard, then do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.